It's good to see everyone out this evening. If you'd like to turn your Bibles to Romans chapter 6. Romans chapter 6. We're going to be reading from that passage in just a moment. Romans chapter 6. As I said, it's good to see everyone out that we have out tonight. We're missing quite a few from our number, uh, whether it be sickness or, or vacation or just traveling at the moment. I want to make sure we're praying for all those that are out on the road and uh, pray them a safe journey back home and also just keep praying for those that are sick and remember the spiritually sick as well. We want to make sure we never put those uh, prayer lists away because uh, it, is a, it is a good work and it is effective work when we are, are praying for one another and praying for the spreading of the gospel. As I said, if you want to turn to Romans chapter 6, we're going to be staying in this passage predominantly for most of our study this evening. And so you just might as well put a marker there or or some kind of indicator because we're going to be coming back to it frequently. We're going to look at a few other passages, especially throughout the New Testament. But but when we read through Romans chapter 6, it is often a case study for the necessity of baptism in salvation. And I'll just say, we'll touch on that, especially as we start this study through Romans chapter 6. But while that is true, it is really, that is just the foundation of what needs to be understood from this chapter. Uh, and, and it really is just the foundation of what needs to be understood about baptism, uh, for that matter. And so what I want to see tonight is what Paul says that baptism is supposed to mean. It's, it's not just merely a one-time event. There is just one baptism, don't get me wrong, as he says in Ephesians chapter 4. But it is supposed to mean something at, at, in our lives. It is supposed to be shown through our lives a reflection of that decision. It is supposed to look like we are living a life of one who has been baptized. And so I want to just... I want to come back to this as we go throughout the text this evening because I really do think that Paul says a lot more about that, what, this, what you're supposed to look like after the fact, um, than maybe necessarily the, the, the mode, which, again, we will start with, and that's really what I uh, want to focus on with this first point. We're just going to have two main points here, and this first point is the fact that he hinges much of the argument from the beginning of this chapter on a necessary death. And so let's go ahead and read verses 1 through 7. Beginning in verse 1 of Romans chapter 6. It says, What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may increase? May it never be. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? Or do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death? Therefore we have been buried with him through baptism into death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have become united with him in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection. Knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him in order that our body of sin might be done away with, so that we would no longer be slaves to sin. For he who has died is freed from sin. And we will read a a few more verses throughout Romans chapter 6 in in just a moment. But just as a kind of a, a base, just a foundation of the study, this is one of the most familiar passages, I, I think, uh, for, for most Christians uh, to almost memorize and to know uh, just, as our, our, just within our own database when we have evangelistic studies with people, when we talk about baptism. This is just a passage that automatically clicks on our minds. We go to Romans chapter 6. What he begins talking about with baptism specifically, though, is that it is a death. 
It is supposed to represent a death, and it is supposed to be a very visceral death in our lives. But when you think about the resurrection, <laughs> they're tied together. They're very strongly connected because the condition of resurrection is death. To be resurrected, one first has to die. And in the first four verses, you see this very plainly within the language. What that means is, very simply, this is not optional. Now, I know that sometimes when we are in a discussion about baptism, maybe with someone who's not a believer, maybe with, maybe with someone who's from a denomination, we have to go through this discussion many times. Maybe we even have to repeat this discussion many times. And the reason is because a lot of the, uh, maybe... A lot of the language that others will use about baptism is it really is optional. But what Paul indicates here is, especially when he ties it to death and resurrection, what that means is it just simply can't be. As we're going to see, that death and resurrection has everything, everything to do with our salvation. And so when he uses words like therefore and so, those follow. I like it when people sometimes say, what is the therefore, therefore? And that's really helpful to know because it's, it follows conditions that have already been made. And so, uh, as we'll see through, throughout the, this passage here, Paul makes so clear that this resurrection can only come through a very specific death. It's not just any death. It's not just, it's not just my death clears all, but it is contact with Christ's death. And we have to come into unison with that. And, and so that brings us to the next point. In, verses th- in verse 3, first of all, he says that you do not know. Speaking to people, it sounds like already should have known. Uh, this is one thing that we need to understand about Romans chapter 6, is that Paul is talking to people who have already been baptized. And he's talking to people who have already been baptized, who should have understood more about what their baptism was supposed to mean in their lives. So we need to have that in our minds from the outset as we study this passage. Because he, this is the way he speaks. You, you know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death. So if we need Christ's death, well, that's, that's a pretty important condition, isn't it? To reach salvation, to attain salvation. And if that is the only means and there is no other way to attain salvation, the question automatically becomes, well, then how do I get in contact with that? And this is a conversation, again, that we we tend to have a lot of the time with people. Now, the reason that we have to come back to this notion of it's not just any death, it's Christ's death that covers all, is because people always have some kind of argument to, to, to maybe back, uh, lash back against this notion of that it's not optional, that it's absolutely necessary when it comes to salvation. And it's not just a creed that people have made up. It's not just some tradition that we're following. It's the tradition of Christ, for sure. And it's a commandment by Christ. But it's a commandment that he's given for a very powerful and specific purpose. And so people might come back when we're talking about baptism and say, okay, well, what's the big deal? Again, if it is vital, if it is necessary that we come into contact with Christ's death to attain salvation, the big deal is this is, in Scripture, the only place, this is where you come into contact with Christ's death, with that blood that washes away sins. As you see in Acts chapter 22, in verse 16, with Paul's recounting of his conversion. And the question we need to ask people is, show me, please show me where else you come into contact with that death and with that blood. Because, again, that is crucial. And if you can't, well, then we have to come back 
to this passage. We have to come back to this notion that this is why it's so important. And we're not overriding all these other things that God gives us, all these other commandments that God gives us. What we're saying is this is, this is the when. This is the when you actually are converted. You actually become a Christian when you come into contact with that death because the old man has to be put away and, and, and the death is coming one way or, no, or another. It's either your death in the judgment or it's the death that Christ paid for you. And so what, we need to get in contact with that death. So someone might come back and say, but you, you don't really have to be baptized. This is something that frequently is said in studies. And what generally I like to respond with is, so, so, so you can be saved without the death of Christ. And I think it needs to be that pointed. Because he is so critical about the fact that we are baptized for the correct reasons. That we are baptized specifically to come in contact with Christ's death. Over in Colossians chapter 2 and verse 13. Colossians chapter 2 and verse 13. <clears throat> Colossians chapter 2 in verse 13 beginning. It says... Paul, again, says, When you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive together with him, having forgiven us all our transgressions, having canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us, which was hostile to us, and he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. So we might read a passage like this, and someone will say, the focus should be on the cross. And I would just answer, yes, absolutely. The focus should be on the cross. And what does Paul connect to the cross here? Because it's very similar language. Go just a couple verses prior to this. Beginning in verse 11 of Colossians chapter 2, is, is speaking of Jesus, beginning in verse 9, it's, this is kind of in the middle of the sentence, but in verse 9 he talks about how Jesus had, had the fullness of deity dwelled in bodily form in him. And in verse 11, and in him you were also circumcised with the circumcision made without hands in the removal of the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. What is that? Having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised up with him through faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. So yes, the cross absolutely should remain the focus. But look at what is connected to the cross. And why is it connected to the cross? Because I need to come into contact with this specific death. This is the only way we can find to come into contact with it. And so if you want his sacrifice to mean anything for you, you must be buried just like he was. You must be put to death just like he was and be united in his death. And well, that brings us to that notion of newness of life. And just like we were talking about with Christ's death, is only contacted through baptism in the same way that newness of life, this resurrected life, is equally and only contacted through baptism. Again, I, so many times when we kind of focus on baptism, the reason is because other people make it a hot topic. We're not overlooking all of the other things that God says our conditions to become a Christian, like faithfulness, like repentance, like confession, like hearing, as we talked about last week. We're not overlooking any of those things. Rather, those things lead, are leading us to the, the moment of conversion. They're leading us to that moment where we obey and become a Christian. And so we're not overlooking all those things. And even when, when you think about that, that notion of we need to become a new creation, you think about what Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, and verse 17, that we are to be a new creation through Christ. 
Everyone agrees with that. Everyone agrees, no matter who you are, that we need to be made a new creation and the old man has to be put away. But again, the question comes down to when does that take place? And the only place you see this by Scripture, indicated by Scripture, is at baptism. Coming back to Colossians in chapter 3, look at how verse 1 starts. We already read the, that passage in chapter 2. But in verse 1 of chapter 3, he says, Therefore, if you have been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Now, he says, if you have been raised, then what? Keep seeking. If you haven't been raised up, it's not going to do you any good to, to act like you have been raised. If you have not been buried to raise a newness of life, this means nothing, but you've got to start all the way back there. And you even continue down in chapter 3, in verse 10, he, after speaking about all these things that we are supposed to put off, again, very similar language to Romans chapter 6. Consider the members of your earthly body as dead to immorality, uh, or immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and greed. And so many things he says to put off in verse 5 and onward. But in verse 10, he says, And have you have put on the new self who is being renewed to a true knowledge according to the image of the one who created him. A renewal in which there is no distinction between Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian and Scythian, slave and free man, but Christ is all and in all. This is the same language from Romans chapter 6. Again, speaking so closely connected in, in speaking about baptism. We already read Colossians chapter 2 and verse 12. That notion of being buried with him in baptism and being raised up. In Acts chapter 22 and verse 16 we mentioned a moment ago. Paul washed away his sins when? He recounts that story. He recounts the story of his conversion when Ananias comes. And when is it said that he is washed away? Why do you delay? Rise and be baptized and wash away your sins calling on the name of the Lord. I'm telling you, it can't get more clear than that. But yet... There are so, there's so much debate, there's so much heated conversations on that. But ultimately, I think it's because it comes down to uh, maybe just prior commitments that have not, or prior allegiances that have not been put by the wayside to follow fully Christ and obey Him fully. So, so you know, just thinking about this, once again, someone could come back and say, okay, so you're just so focused on baptism, so repentance, that just isn't essential to salvation? I don't know how we could be more clear. Just like what Paul says in Romans chapter 6, may it never be. The question is, when do we attain that salvation? And it's only when we have been united with his death and resurrection. And this occurs at baptism. So, we're dead to sin, but it does not end there. I think that we, I think that everyone in this room, at least most of everyone in this room, completely understands that we need to become dead to sin. The old man has to be put away, and that only happens when we come into contact with Christ's death and blood. But there's also a secondary notion to that. It's not just about being risen in newness of life and then, nothing, and then we don't think about anything else. All we had to do was just get baptized and then not think about anything whatsoever. These are two commandments here. You, were, you are dead to sin, but also you are alive to God. And those two commandments, well, they, they're two sides of the same coin. But we can't forget either side. And, and I would just say, I think when we look at Romans chapter 6, I don't think it's that we think too much about being dead to sin, because that's really what we tend to focus on. I just think we don't focus enough or think enough about what it means to be alive to God at times. We need to have a life that looks like we've been baptized, a visibly resurrected life. 
The question is, have I been living the resurrected life? We often come to Romans chapter 6 to correct false doctrine on baptism. Like what we talk about immersion. And it's not sprinkling. And we use this to correct some false doctrine from Catholicism or, or uh, Methodist doctrine. And, and, and I think that that is 100% appropriate. And we need to come back to this over and over again to repel that kind of false doctrine. But sometimes we put the focus fully on the need to go into the water. And that is appropriate. But, but Paul's emphasis is on how we come up from the water. His emphasis is you you should have known, or you, you need to remember what you were risen up to do. You need to remember the kind of life, the kind of character that you were supposed to take on when you rose up from that water. Because let me tell you, that baptism isn't just to only, it's not supposed to mean something just one day in your life. It's supposed to mean something for the rest of your life. It's a lot like marriage. You get married, you, you have one wedding, and and it's not like after all of that ceremony, after all of that, you know, beautiful and wonderful time of being with family and being with loved ones and being able to have joy with this, just this wonderful occasion. We don't just say, okay, we got married this one day and then we just keep on acting like I'm a bachelor. We don't get married one day and then say, okay, I can just keep acting like I'm single. I can keep living like I'm single and not think about the other person in the house. It's just like with a marriage. Now you live the life of a married person. You live the life of a husband. You live the life of a wife. In the same way, we are supposed to live the life of a Christian. Paul is writing to those who had been baptized, not to those needing to be baptized. And so what is he trying to get them to understand about, it, about what it means to have this resurrected life and living it? What does it mean to be alive to God? Well, first of all, it means that God reigns, not sin. Coming back to Romans chapter 6. Romans chapter 6, we'll pick up where we were uh, left off. It says, now if we have died with Christ in verse 8, we believe that we shall also live with him, knowing that Christ having been raised from the dead is never to die again. Death no longer is master over him. For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life that he lives, he lives to God. Even so, consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its lusts. And do not go on presenting the members of your body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourselves to Christ as those alive from the dead, and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. For sin shall not be master over you, for you are not under law, but under grace. Continuing on in verse 15, What then? Shall we sin because we are not under law, but under grace? May it never be. Do you not know that when you present yourselves to someone as slaves for obedience, you are slaves of the one whom you obey? either of sin resulting in death or of obedience resulting in righteousness. But thanks be to God that though you were slaves of sin, you became obedient from the heart to that form of teaching to which you were committed. And having been freed from sin, you, have, you became slaves of righteousness. I am speaking in human terms because of the weakness of your flesh. For just as you presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, resulting in further lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, resulting in sanctification. What I think is interesting about this, clearly we, we love that notion of, well, of course, God reigns, absolutely. But when he talks about this notion of slavery, I think maybe that's a little bit harder to take on. He's not saying you're, you're passively devoted to God. He says you are devotedly living for him. It should not be that when we become a Christian, our following a master ends. 
as you just read in verses 8 through, uh, 8 through 19, I know it's a bit longer of a reading, but I think it all just goes together. He says, you're no longer slaves of unrighteousness, slaves of sin resulting in death, but now you're supposed to be, still be slaves, but of God. This, the slavery, it's interesting because the slavery hasn't ended necessarily. Just the old master. Now we're choosing a new one. Now we've taken on a new one. This even, when you think about the, that great invitation that, that Jesus gives, he, he talks about my, my yoke is light, or, or, or the, the, the burden that he has, the yoke that he has, it's light. You need to take off the yoke of the devil, but put on the yoke of... Now, some people would look at that and say, but a yoke, you're still, it's still that slavery kind of language. It's still this bondage kind of language. And sometimes people, I mean, they really don't like that idea. And it, it's, it's perplexing to me because here we are talking about not just, we're not just talking about bondage to Satan, bondage to the world. We're talking about bondage to Christ. Who would be a better taskmaster? Who do you trust to be a fairer taskmaster? I'll take Jesus as my taskmaster any day. I'll take Jesus and his load, his burden over the world and Satan's any day. So I think we need to reevaluate the way we look at this kind of language, even though it is slavery language. In other words, as, as we just read in this passage, you were once enamored, controlled, and living for sin, living for the devil, your, master, your old master. You don't put that dedication and you don't put that submission away. Instead, you now are enamored, controlled, living for righteousness, living for God. Again, coming back to 2 Corinthians chapter 5, I, I love how Paul uh, talks about that notion of that the love of Christ controls us. <laughs> what a better thing to be controlled by. But I think we can understand this kind of um, idea of being controlled by sin because we all were saved from it. We all had vices that maybe were heavier than others. Maybe, maybe other people didn't fully understand that specific, that, that big whopper of a sin that always got you. But you do. And you can recall how, how yielding your will was and how little your resolve tended to be with that specific sin. We all can think back to those moments. For some, it's pornography. For some, it's alcohol. For some, it's drug abuse. For some, it's gossip, as we were talking about earlier. We all have something that we, that we understand Jesus has saved us from. And what I love about this is he says, you don't just let go of that kind of desire. You don't just let go of that kind of, of, that kind of control, uh, of that kind of submission. But you give that submission, you give that desire to the new master. And that's going to change everything. I once chased every craving of the flesh. But now, what do I crave? But I hunger and thirst for righteousness. As he says in the Beatitudes in Matthew chapter 5. The craving shouldn't stop. The craving for sin should stop. But the craving itself shouldn't. In fact, it should grow for God. Because that's what Jesus calls for in the Beatitudes. I once hoarded every treasure I could find in this life. But now, I store up treasures in heaven. As we see in Matthew chapter 6 and verses 19 through 21. We don't give up on treasure entirely. It's actually essential that we seek God's treasure. I once served sin with my entire being, my entire life, but now my entire life is Christ, as Paul says in Colossians 3 and verse 4. 
So you see that if I was active back then in sin, I am to be more so in God. More so in righteousness. And so this is not a passiveness. This is not just idleness. This is a very active lifestyle. And in fact, when you think about that kind of activity, it's Im- that's important to keep in mind because this next point, this has a lot. To- you really have to put things on yourself to be clothed in Christ. Secondly, it means actively looking more like him. Romans chapter 8 and verse 29, Paul says that we are supposed to be conforming to his image. Conforming to his image does not just mean taking on his outward appearance, but also his characteristics. It doesn't mean that you can just look like him outwardly, but you don't have to look like him inwardly. So what do we mean by that? Well, let's just go over to Colossians again, Colossians chapter 3. Now you recall what it says in verse 1. Therefore, if you have been raised, continue seeking the things above. But then we, we go back. Colossians chapter 3, but beginning in verse 12 this time. Now that we have been renewed, now that we have been recreated in the image of God, in the image of Christ, now what are we putting on in verse 12? So as those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved, put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience, bearing with one another and forgiving each other, whoever has a complaint against anyone, just as the Lord forgave you, so also you should do. So also should you, beyond all these things, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. Now, as we were saying, you have to put on the outward appearance and you have to put on the inward characteristics. And we're not going to trick God. We may be able to trick man. We may be even able to trick the church, but we won't trick God. And so being like Christ consists of teaching people the gospel publicly and having patience with people inwardly. You don't get a pass just because you're, you're better at evangelizing than others, even in a public capacity, but you just have no patience for anyone. Being like Christ consists of not lashing out, not lashing out uh, on people outwardly. It also has to do with having a heart of compassion for them. People like to put this resurrected life into a box. They like to act like as long as I change the outward appearance, as long as I just look the part, but knew nothing about the inward heart, then everything's okay. You can keep your composure with brethren. You can keep your composure with brethren in the assembly. You can put on a false facade and still be condemned in the sight of God because of an unforgiving heart. We can look the part by going up to people and trying to pat them on the back and saying, I'm rooting for you. I want you to be encouraged. I want you to be strengthened. And then, just like we talked about this morning, go behind their back and start gossiping about them. That doesn't work. That doesn't compute. We have to take on that outward appearance. Yes, encourage. But also have that compassion. Also have that empathy. Also have that that desire to bear with one another. Finally, I think a resurrected life means that you are sharing it with others. Acts chapter 5 and verses 41, uh, 40 through 41, you see the desire of the apostles to always, to, to continuously be striving to spread the gospel in, in, the most, in the most beautiful way that I think you can possibly imagine. When they're beaten, what do they do? They rejoice. Why? Because they were considered worthy to suffer for the cause of Christ. 
they, they cannot stop speaking about it, even in the midst of suffering. And in the same kind of instance in Acts chapter 8 and verse 4. What happens when the church spreads? What happens when the church scatters in the midst of such a vile and great persecution? The gospel spread. And Philip goes down and spreads the gospel and evangelizes to those of Samaria. And the gospel does not stop there. It just keeps going, even in the midst of such suffering. Why? What's beautiful is that even in that same chapter in Acts chapter 8, you see the joy that it brings to those people. And it should bring joy to us. I think about that moment in John chapter 4 and verses 28 through 30 with the, with the Samaritan woman that Jesus is talking to. What does she do? She leaves the water pot and she goes and she begins talking to her village. Everyone that she knows about the one that she just met. The one who told me everything I've ever done. The Messiah. The Christ. The Lord's anointed. I... How could I understand what I've been given, what I've been granted through Christ and not share it with others? Why do people discourage new converts from their excitement in preaching the gospel and trying to evangelize to those around them? I just don't understand that. How can we not be, have, have the vigor and the, the blazing desire in our hearts to go and talk to people about what Christ has done for us? It may be because... It might not be, but it is very likely that it is because like these Christians that Paul is writing to, just like they did, I might have forgotten this beautiful blessing that has been given to me. I might have forgotten that it wasn't just a one-day thing that, oh, all right, never have to think about it again. But I've been baptized to continue to grow, to continue to evangelize, to continue growing in that joy, just like Paul, as we were reading about in Philippians in the Bible class. That joy did not stop, and it was not even really hindered when he hit some roadblocks. It just kept increasing. And in fact, that joy was so infectious that he kept spreading the gospel even to the whole Praetorian Guard. Isn't that a beautiful example? We can follow that example, ultimately following the example of Christ. I would just come back to Romans chapter 6 one last time with the last bit of verses that, that, that Paul says there in Romans chapter 6 and verse 22. He says, But now, having been freed from sin and enslaved to God, you derive your benefit, resulting in sanctification, and the outcome, eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. It is a beautiful gift. And it is a gift that he has so readily made accessible to us. But when that word free is in front of gift, it doesn't just mean that God is a universalist, that he's just going to force salvation on everyone. You've got to choose him. You've got to choose to live that resurrected life. Not just act the part, but fully live it. Put on the character of Christ, not just make it an outward appearance. And if you are not a Christian, you have to meet him in his death. To meet him in the resurrection in his resurrection, in newness of life, at baptism. And if you're not willing to do that, then very simply, you're not willing to obey Christ. But if you are willing to do that, you're ready to become a Christian. If you are willing to follow and accept all the conditions that he has given you, do you have you heard the gospel? Are you willing to act on it? Are you willing to be faithful to God? Are you willing to repent of your sins? All the things that he has said you need to put away with. Confess that he is the son of the living God to be baptized into his death to rise in newness of life. You can have that beautiful blessing 
this very evening. If you're subject to the invitation of Christ, please come forward as we stand and as we sing.